Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Today, I am super excited to bring on the show a woman that I actually got to meet in person at her fundraising event, gosh, not quite a year ago. And she's somebody that I followed online for quite a while because she has an amazing organization doing really cool work with both horses and women. And so she's somebody I've been trying to get on the show for a while. And we finally managed to get together for my first live in-person recording session. Chris Nichols is the president and executive director of the Medicine Horse Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the rescue of abused, abandoned, neglected, or displaced horses. She's certified in horse-inspired growth and healing and facilitates programs for veterans, women's empowerment, and at-risk youth with her method of discovering resiliency through horsemanship. Chris also offers horsemanship workshops and clinics, helping equestrians develop deeper connection and partnership with their horses. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, finally. Me too, because we had one go at doing this recording via Zoom, and that did not work very well. So I'm stepping into the unknown with you, and I trust you to be my partner in this new little experiment, because I know that you are very easygoing and flexible and adaptable, and that I know because you're a horsewoman. <laughs> Actually, I would like that in writing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to write that down for you. <laughs> Well, I like to start the interviews off with some easy questions that just kind of get us rolling. And so I have a pretty cool set of questions for us. Are you ready to go? Oh, absolutely. If you could go on an adventure by horseback anywhere in the world, where would you go? The Old West. I know I live in the Old West, right? California. And moving to the Old West out in the desert in Nevada. But I think that there's so much to discover on the trail less traveled. And I would love to hop on the back of a horse and go down the path that no one else has gone before and see the vision and the view that no one else has seen. Is there anywhere in particular that you know has those paths less traveled that you could go on? Like anywhere anywhere that's really pulling at you? I love Nevada. I absolutely love the desert. There's nothing like a desert sky at night. I have visited many years ago Zion National Park in Utah and went out to this this canyon that I forget what the name of it was, but it was no one had ever been there before. And it was breathtaking. And there was stuff that you just knew no one had seen but your eyes in a very long time. And it was organic and it was whole and untouched and pure. And I loved that. Wow. That sounds really exciting. And it also, to me, sounds a little bit scary to go, <laughs> you know, way out in the back of beyond where there just aren't any people on your own with the horse. I uh, love it. So how do you, you're not worried at all about being out there in the back of beyond just with a horse? I'm not. I'm not. Are you kidding? A trusted partner exploring 
silence, quiet. I don't think we get the opportunity to spend enough time in that space these days in the world we live in. Yeah. So what do you do just in terms of planning for weird stuff like rattlesnakes or tripping over a rock or weird stuff like that, the the storm that comes out of nowhere? And Do you do anything? Well, rattlesnakes, they're everywhere. And my experience is if I see a rattlesnake and I just go the opposite direction and usually come back later. It's not there anymore. So they don't want to interact with us more than we don't want to interact with them. So we just go our separate ways and storms happen. Storms out in the desert are absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and intense sometimes. And they also feel amazing on your skin. Yeah. Yeah. There's no pollution. Yeah. Exactly. It's clean, clean rain. It's clean and it's cool and it's cleansing. And well, so it sounds like you place a whole lot of trust in your, your equine partner too, though, because you would have to have a horse that you had a whole bunch of faith in that wasn't going to be really dingy and spooking at stuff that they shouldn't spook at and that type of thing. Or do you just kind of, is that it? You know, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm, I am not the most confident rider. But I like horses that are a little naughty. (laughs) I prefer the little bit naughty over the little bit quiet. The quiet scares me more than the naughty. So just go Whoever happens to be your partner. It's all for me about connection and relationship. And if you put your relationship first, your partnership builds, and the two of you are unstoppable. Well, that leads me to my second question, which is about your new horse. Oh, Ella. Yeah. So what's your favorite thing to do with her? Oh, my gosh. I am so in love with this horse, like a schoolgirl in love, dreaming and looking through catalogs and what color should she wear? And (laughs) it has been one of the biggest blessings in my life this year, this horse that I wasn't even looking for that found me. And Interestingly enough, my favorite thing to do with Ella is just spend time with Ella. And I think she's enjoying it. It's just, we are connecting on a level that I haven't connected with a horse in a very long time. I haven't had my own personal horse since 2007. So this is really kind of a new adventure for me. And I couldn't have had the best horse chosen for me by a field of amazing women who all conspired to make this happen. And it's really cool. Last, a couple of weeks ago, I had a volunteer come out and work with Navaya. She's one of our wild ones. And I pulled Ella out to just be near where I could kind of coach and keep an eye on, on Sarah and Navaya, but spend some quality time with my own horse. And we did a lot of nothing. And you know what? It was spectacular. We did silly things like I, I was having her side pass over to me on a um, mounting block and I was laying across her back and giving her cookies on her offside, which she thought was very bizarre. And I was laughing and giggling. And it was also, you know, I'm going to go sit on a barrel and coach Sarah for a minute with Navaya and you just need to be here and be with me. And it took our connection and our relationship to a really cool place. I don't think we spend enough undemanding time with our horses. Oh, I love that you said that because this has been one of my 
huge discoveries working with the dogs. Mm. Uh, and it, it really has come from learning from Mike Ritland how he approaches working with dogs. Yeah. And it, even if you look at his puppy program, you know, the first month, and this is what he recommends with people who are getting new dogs who are older than puppy too, is just hanging out together. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to work. You're not trying to train. You're not even asking them to interact with you. You're just being present. And then when they choose to interact with you, that's where the magic starts to happen because you are, you're doing exactly what you're talking about, which is building that bond and building that connection and that desire to interact with each other. So I love that that's what you're doing with Ella. You know, that is the core of my horsemanship program is, you know, I'm not out checking fence. I'm not bringing in cattle. Horses are recreation for me. And I think they are for most people. Of course, there's some working horses out there in the world today. But for the most part, we have horses for recreation. And if we expect them to be recreation for us, we need to be recreation for them. And one of the biggest questions I get from clients or people who come to workshops is, when is it too much? When is working with your horse too much? And my standard answer is, when it's become work. Because you should be playing with your horses. And at the point that it's become work, it's been too much. It's been far too much. Mm -hmm. So that undemanding quality time, going and spending time in their world, because we demand they come into ours so much, is so critical to building that partnership. Oh, that's so cool. I, I want to dive like really deep into how you work with the horses in just a minute. But I also want to ask you two quick questions just as part of this introductory part. Mm-hmm. So what, given how much time you spend working with the horses and then with your job job, mm-hmm. what is your favorite self-care practice? Being with the horses and spending undemanding time out there. I'll tell you a quick story because it's, it so embodies who I am. I um, went out into the pasture and I had, I think, five or six horses out there. And I wanted to just go spend time in their world. But I also wanted to see, because horses love harmony and they match energy, if I could get them to roll. So my goal was to go out there, be in their space, become part of the herd, and then roll. So I started pawing at the ground and looking for just the right spot. And my neighbors, I'm sure, think I'm nuts. (laughs) Because I laid down and rolled. Great big old sand dust, everything (laughs) flying everywhere. The horses were all standing there looking at me like, I think she's officially lost it. (laughs) And then I laid there for a minute, kind of disappointed that nobody came and rolled with me. But then I stood up to leave and I felt this whoosh of energy. And when I turned around, they had all laid down to roll (laughs) where I had rolled. (laughs) Oh, God, that's amazing. It, It made me laugh so hard. Oh, that's incredible. And that is like the ultimate self-care practice because A, it's out in nature, it's interacting with other creatures, but it's also just like so out of your cognitive brain, your your doing, thinking, task oriented. You know, it's just so much just such a joyous experience. That is one of the biggest gifts horses have to give us as teachers, is to be present. When you're with a 1,500-pound animal, you have to be present right here, right now. And that is the biggest gift 
that they give us. Yeah. Well, I even find with my little minis, like I had to be paying attention. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're small. They're like 250 pounds, but they're still horses. We now have two little goats that are part of our program. And you have to be present with two little goats, too, because they're so (laughs) mischievous, but they are a blast. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, I just, I wish everybody, you know, had the opportunity to just step out of the daily grind and all the stress and anxiety and the worry about, you know, especially right now, everything that's going on and just have the opportunity to just go out and do that. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. I wonder if I could get the minis to roll in the pasture. I, You're going to go home and try now, I though, are you? <laughs> I am, but I think I'm going to put on more clothing because I don't want to have, like, bare skin down where all the stickers <laughs> and the foxtails and the burrs are. <laughs> yeah, that probably wouldn't feel good. No, no. But I'm used to going in. I don't know about you, but when I go in and take a shower at the end of the day, it just always makes me laugh because I don't leave a ring around the bottom of the tub anymore. I leave, like, <laughs> a whole swath of dirt that washes off. Very true. That's a successful day. Yes. (laughs) Well, what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Make yourself a priority. Live your life and plan your life for you. Because if you don't take care of number one, you can't be the best you can be for anything or anyone else in your life. I wish I spent so many years worrying about what other people thought and living my life the way I thought other people thought I should be living it and wasn't all that happy. And when I made that choice of, you know what, I've got to make me number one and I've got to, I've got to practice self-care and I've got to make myself healthy and balanced. It was amazing how I flourished in confidence in my ability to love and my ability to be a better person and human mother and wife. And it's powerful when you realize you're number one and you must make yourself important and a priority in your life. You cannot be last and be successful. Mm -hmm. You can't. How old were you when you realized that? 40. And so I sure wish I had learned it at 20. I wish I had learned it at 15. Yeah, it's something that I know cognitively. And I've I've found even in the last year, it's something that I've really struggled with, especially after the puppies arrived. (laughs) It is. And life happens. And we get pulled so many different directions. And it takes courage to step back. Push yourself away from the complicated table and say, I need to take a moment for me so that I can be the best I can be for you. I've got to step away for a minute. Mm -hmm. But it's critical. It's critical to your own self-health. I think the reason that it takes courage is because a lot of fear comes up that if, if I take this time for me, even if it's you know, a half hour to go out into a pasture and play with a horse. You know, if I take this time for me, then all these other things that are dependent on me are going to fail or, you know, people are going to judge me for not doing these other things or that I'm never going to get around to it. That's the stuff that pops up for me. It's like, if I, if I even take half an hour for me, then I'm not going to make progress on X, Y, or Z that I should. And uh, you're right. It does take a lot of courage to just say, you know, I'm, I'm really important. Mm -hmm. And 
maybe some of those fears might actually come true, but I'd be willing to bet that many of them don't. Like the world doesn't actually end if you do take time for yourself. I've learned, I'm learning that. I'm absolutely learning that. I read a book and now the name of it is going to escape me, but it was a corporate business book that I read five, six years ago that talked about having a wig, a wildly important goal. I think as women, especially, we're pulled in so many different directions. We're mothers, we're wives, we're businesswomen, we're friends, we're grandmothers, we're all these different things. And all of them very equally important, but we get pulled everywhere. The house needs to be cleaned. The animals need to be cared for. This needs to be done. That needs to be done. And I tend to be one of those that, that has a whole list of goals. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but reality is you can't do 10 things well. Probably not even good. You could probably do 10 things, but how well? And this book kind of outlined and explains how you need to have one wildly important goal. And you may have some sub goals under it, but they need to feed that wildly important goal. And when you're faced with a decision of something to do or not to do, or something to add to a list or not add to a list, the question needs to be, how does that serve my wig? Because if it doesn't, then your answer should be no. Yeah. It's a nice to do, not a, not a have to do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That's really potent. That's potent. And I think that's something really important to learn when you're in your twenties. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it's something that you probably have to make a practice of every single day through your thirties and your forties and your fifties. Oh, it, it takes work. Challenge. It's, it's a daily work. And I don't just wake up and go today. I'm going to do this and this because it serves my wig. And I'm going to say no to everything else. Sometimes I have to back myself up and go, whoa, take a deep breath. Look at your to-do list. And now what on there serves the wig? Because you need to, you need to prioritize here. Well, I'll tell you what, that makes me feel really good because that means that coming to do this interview is in line and in alignment with with your wig. So yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what was your first encounter with the horse like? Like, how old were you and and what was that encounter all about? You know, people ask me all the time because I'm so passionate with horses and they consume so much of my life that I must have grown up around them and I didn't. I I grew up in, my parents were gypsies, so we moved around a lot. But for a while, we lived in San Ramon out in the Bay Area. And at the other end of Crow Canyon Road, which now I'm sure is houses, was all pasture and grazing and cows and ranches. And we went out there a couple times and rented horses. They weren't great experiences. And then in, I think it was junior high, my best friend in junior high had a horse. She stabled at Blackhawk Stables and she took jumping lessons. And so after school, I would go out to the stables with her and I loved it. I absolutely loved that horse and sort of sat there coveting. I want to try and jump a horse. But it wasn't until much later in life that I think I was 28 or 29 that horses really came into my life. And my first horse was a little Appaloosa named Jedi, who was a stinker to the core of his soul. And I think he was just as afraid of me as I was of him. (laughs) 
but we, we did great things together in our perspective. We didn't win shows. We didn't even show, but we conquered a lot and we learned a lot with each other. It was awesome. It was a dream come true. Yeah, that's, that's neat. So how did you find him? You know, I think it was like an ad in a horse trader magazine or something. He was originally owned by like the chief of police of the community we lived in in Southern California. And he was retired and he had, um, oh, what was it? He had a lung disorder, emphysema or something. And his kids were convinced that he needed to give up this horse. And he gave me the horse all the tack, his leftover feed, brushes, everything for, I think, $600. Oh, wow. I think the saddle was probably worth $600. But he was a really special little horse. He was little. And he taught me a lot. He awakened me a lot of things I didn't even know that were there. And he was, he was very special. He what was were first. some of the things he taught you? You know, he taught me that I was afraid. I was terrified of him. And I didn't know that would happen until he was in my yard. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that I would be afraid of this horse that's now in my yard. And I had no idea how to care for a horse. I didn't know how big of a water trough to have. I didn't know you had to worm them ever so often. I, I jumped into something with absolutely no knowledge to prepare me to be successful. And that's not a mistake I'll make again (laughs) because it wasn't good for him. It wasn't good for me. And it didn't set either one of us up for success. It put me on a path of amazing learning though. Amazing. So what were some of the things that he awakened? I had fear and that fear isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if you don't look fear in the eye and shake its hand and ask it how it's doing today, you will never move past it. You have to, you can't push it away or under the rug and think that things will get better because they don't. You have to stand on two legs, look it in the eye and go, hi, how you doing? So I'd like to move past this. (laughs) Gonna go find some strategies on how to do that. And it made me learn how to go out and be vulnerable and share with people, hey, I have some fear and I would really like to work through it. It taught me how to build a network of support around me, which is not something I had ever done before. I'd always made sure there was kind of a wall around me and it was freeing. Learning to be vulnerable is very freeing. Yes. Yeah, that's really cool. And I can see how that later on integrated into the work that you do. Yes. Yeah. So so what is the story of the Medicine Horse Project? Oh, it's a great story. So many moons ago, I worked for Lifesavers Wild Horse Rescue. I was on their board of directors and I don't know what my title would have been, but I taught workshops and and gave tours to volunteers and was their adoption coordinator, I guess I probably was. And they have a flagship program that they've done annually. I think their first one was 1988, 1999. My first involvement with it was in 2000, what called Wild Horse Boot Camp. And it's every year, still is to this day. 
And people come from all over the country and even all over the world to spend, I think it's four days, hands-on learning how to gentle wild horses. And we thought we were teaching people how to gentle wild horses. But in reality, every time we did this, we discovered we were gentling people. And every single time people were coming away with life epiphanies. And and going home on a path to a different kind of wellness that they didn't know before they had this. And so we wanted to take it kind of another step further. And I got certified in EGALA, Equine Assisted Growth and Healing. And Lifesaver's mission was the rescue and rehabilitation of wild horses. And they do some wonderful programs. Medicine Horse, which is really was created in, in its inception was by Jill Starr, the founder of Lifesavers, was to marry those two things officially in a mission, to take rescued horses and combine them with people who need healing and breed resilience and hope. And it's been really powerful every step of the way. We started in 2015 in Southern California in 2016, we taught our very first women's empowerment retreat, which was phenomenal. And then in 2000, I'm trying to remember my timeline here, 2017, Jill's focus returned entirely to Lifesavers and she stepped away from Medicine Horse and we moved it up here, my husband and I, Morgan, and we just hit the ground running. And she made a great baby and she gave us the baby and now we're helping the baby grow up. And it's been amazing. Wow. I did not know the whole birth story. Yeah, it, it was incredible. And I was honored. The minute Jill called and said, hey, I want to start this new nonprofit and this is what, you know, I want the mission to be. And I was wondering if you would come back and get on the board. I was like, uh, yes. She didn't even have to finish the sentence. It was like, I'm in. And the very first women's empowerment retreat, I wrote the curriculum outline for on a hotel napkin when my husband and I had gone down to visit Medicine Horse in Southern California. And then I went to the ranch and I ran it all past her and she was like, oh my gosh, we have to do this. And we did it that very next Memorial Day weekend. Wow. So two questions. First question is why Mustangs and Rescues? And the second question is I want to hear more about what you actually did in that women's empowerment program. Ah. So our mission as medicine horse is not just Mustangs. But I think with, with my years in Southern California working for Lifesavers, it tends to be what I'm known for. So it tends to be what we're called for. But we rescue any horses in need, no breed specific. But I specifically believe that it is incredibly powerful to take a horse that a human has given up on, because that's the only reason why it needs us, mm-hmm. is a human has given up on it or a human has given up on themselves and can't figure out how to care for it or feed it or whatever the situation is. When you partner that with a human that for whatever reason has given up on themselves, powerful things happen because that human heals that horse and that horse heals that human. And our job as facilitators is just to get out of the way and create a safe space to allow that that to happen 
and then let the magic unfold before our eyes. And that is exactly what we do. We let it happen and get out of the way. Um, I've got like so many questions going, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> which, which do I ask? So, so in that first women's empowerment program, is that what you did? The first women's empowerment is very different than the one we teach now. The first one was just Medicine Horse Project, and now we partner with Lifesavers, and so it's a wild horse women's empowerment. And so the very first one, we worked with handleable horses, and we created activities that women would do with the horses that would provoke some inward reflection and offer the opportunity to build some metaphors with what's happening between horse and human, to what might be going on in some aspects of your life. And then just letting it unfold. So what were some of the activities? Oh, this is my favorite activity that we do with the handleable ones. I call it the mosey. I am a let's go. Come on, I got things to do. I've got a schedule. I've got people to see, things to do. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Learning to mosey was a very complicated thing for me. It wouldn't sound like it would be that hard, but it was. So I have this activity where I have people get with their horse and they used the rescue horses, of course, and you stand right at the withers of the horse. So right at the base of the neck and you have them on a lead rope and a halter and the ranch down there was 20 acres. So we really turned people loose on 20 acres. And we said, go spend 30 minutes with this horse mirror them, do what they do. If they're standing and grazing, stand and graze. If they're looking off at something, look off at something. Even so much as if they're flexing their ribs, you flex your ribs. You're going to go spend 30 minutes in their world doing everything they do. You would be shocked at how hard that is to do. It's hard. Yeah. It is really hard. We had one gal, God bless her, I adore this woman, and she rescues donkeys. She had come and participated, and we, we partnered her with this horse. And this is a little tiny woman. I don't think she's five feet tall, and I'll bet you she doesn't weigh 80 pounds dripping wet. And she rescues donkeys, and she has a full-time job, and she's married, and she has all these activities in her life, and she's just this go-getter. And you could look off to one side and and there would be one participant sitting there kneeling with their horse and they're both looking off and it's majestic. And you look over that way and they're kind of moseying down a hill to graze in a new patch. And then you look that way and here they come. Buzz, 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 buzz. They were buzzing everywhere, trotting. And she was, her little legs were just going a mile a minute (laughs) trying to keep up with this horse. And after 30 minutes, she comes running up and we gathered everybody in and she goes, okay, I get it. I get it. I probably need to cut a few things out of my life and settle down. I get it. I got to slow down. (laughs) It was awesome. It was so awesome to watch. So that horse picked up on her energy. Oh, you bet it did. And was like, okay. We got to be busy. We got things to do. Yeah. We're moving and shaking. And we may not be going anywhere in particular, but damn, we're going to hustle. Yep. We're going to get there. Yeah. And we're going to get there fast. And then we're going to go somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's really cool. What, uh, What other kinds of activities do you do? Some of the activities are just sitting. Just go sit with a horse. And see what happens. 
Just that simple. Go sit with a horse and see what happens because you'd be amazed at what does. A lot of our activities are very focused on, I'm going to teach you through horsemanship how to connect with a horse. And then simply how to get it to go forward, backwards, left, and right online. All of our activities are online. There's no writing. So just a simple how to get a horse to go forward, backwards, left, and right. And from there, magic happens. It is absolute magic to watch it happen. And it's organic and it's better than anything I could, any activity I could create to provoke it. It's just powerful. I think what I, what I like about this is that there are programs that are, quote, therapeutic programs with horses, mm-hmm. but they're very directive. You know, they're task-oriented. Yes. Go, go do this thing or, or do it this way. And there's so much openness. And it's not that there's a lack of direction with what you're doing, but you're, it's almost like raising kids where, like, you set the environment up. Absolutely. A, so you have a container and a structure and an environment. And then you say, okay, this is your space. Do something. Right. And we get so many people reach out to volunteer. And what do volunteers do? What do you want to do? It's not that we don't have a volunteer program and a process and procedures and things that need to get done, because we do. But everyone who's seeking to volunteer in an organization and around these kind of animals, they're seeking something. So share with me what you want out of it, and let's create an opportunity for you to come and volunteer that's a win for us and a win for you. And it just feels better that way. I have volunteers that will just call and say, I need some poop therapy. Come on up. We've got plenty of that. (laughs) We have volunteers that have no desire to interact with a horse. All they really want to do is come muck. That's awesome. I have another volunteer that I don't even know if she knows how to halt her horse, but she will come grab brushes and just walk amongst the horses. And the ones that will allow her to brush, she will brush. And the ones that don't want to, don't get brushed. And it makes her feel awesome. And that's all that matters. And the horses got brushed. So it's a win-win. Oh, that's terrific. So I'm curious, you said that the original Women's Empowerment Program is different from the current one. And you mentioned the difference also between working with the horses that were already gentled and handleable versus the wild horses. Can you talk more about that? (laughs) (laughs) Working with a wild horse is like no other experience. It is almost indescribable. So at our Women's Empowerment, where we partner with Lifesavers, we spend four days in the remote Wild Horse Canyon. It is very remote. On a beautiful sanctuary where horses that have suffered abuse and neglect or just weren't ever meant to be domesticated or this horrors of stories, stories that are so horrendous, they just deserve to be left alone, get to roam free. I mean, it's incredible energy just to be there. So we put women in with wild horses. We put you in a round pen and we teach you how to make that first touch, that first connection. And we take the horses as far as we can take them over those days. Some of them, it just might be a first touch. Some of them, maybe they get haltered. Some of them, maybe they learn to lead. We let the horses decide how far we take them. And it's a pretty cool thing. So are any of them dangerous to be around? Any wild horse 
offers an opportunity for, you know, some situations to arise, but we have three phenomenal, I'm one of them, wild horse gentlers. And we take as many precautions as we possibly need to. And we tell everybody when you get in the pen, first, I always ask my, my group, do you want me to go in with you or do you want to go in alone? Because if you want to go in with me, that's fine too. But if you go in alone, if I should ever say to you, get out of the pen, just get out. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me where. Just get out. Find the nearest place. Get out. And then we can talk about what happened and why and whether or not you're going to go back in. So I would imagine that fear comes up a lot with the women who come to work with the horses. I mean, most people, well, I won't say most people are afraid of horses, but many people are afraid of horses. You know, Mm -hmm. they're big. You get stepped on or bitten or kicked and stuff like that. So how do you, like, do you find a lot of women with fear that come to work with you and how do you help them navigate through that? We do have a lot of people come who have fear. And in fact, I teach a workshop separate from women's empowerment called Breaking Through the Fear. And it is truly just how do we face that fear and how do we move through it and feel well about it? It's really about trust. It's about bringing up your own confidence and leadership and personal strength. And when you find it, it's amazing the things that you can conquer, including making an incredible connection with a wild horse. So talk to me then about, like, what do you teach in your workshop about fear? That's a big subject to dive into because I have struggled with fear my entire life. I was always that girl that played it safe. I'm sure my parents will listen to this and go, really? (laughs) You were that girl who played it safe? But in my mind, I really did. I I was the girl that was afraid to climb the rock because what if I fell? I was the girl that, you know, was afraid to do stuff because I was afraid of consequences. What if I got hurt? What if this happened? What if that happened? I was the queen of anticipated fear. So one of the first things we teach in the fear workshop is that there's two primary kinds of fear. Fear now. Something has happened right now. There's a rattlesnake. That's going to provoke a fear now response in your body. And that's real fear. Something has happened and you are responding to it. But there's also this little nasty, evil thing we call anticipated fear. It is all the stuff that we've conjured up in our minds before we're actually even anywhere near a situation that could happen or could not happen. So step one is really identifying what kind of fear do you have? Are you having a fear now response or is this anticipated fear that may or may not be real? Then we really look at our comfort zones. You know, as adults, it's a safe place to be and it feels good in there and it's cozy, but there's no learning. There's no growing. There's nothing like that takes place in a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. But as women, In particular, I think when we get out of our comfort zone, like we bolt as fast as we can to the edge of the cliff and and then go, oh my gosh, this feels awful. And we (laughs) bolt back to our comfort zone where it's safe and soft and squishy and cuddly. 
And so it's learning that you have to get outside your comfort zone to learn and grow, but don't bolt to the edge of the cliff. Get out there to where you're a little bit uncomfortable and then do something that makes you feel better in that space before you retreat to your comfort zone. And if you can really commit to doing that and building a support system, you can't do it on your own. You have to have, I call them arrows in my quiver. You have to have arrows in your quiver to help you get through those and have a support system around you instead of your comfort zone getting smaller, which is what happens when we retreat there too often, your comfort zone grows. And then you're shocked at what you can do. I mean, it's amazing. Right. Because it might grow in one direction. You think, you know, that you've been moving in that direction. So it grows that direction, but it also grows in other directions as well. It absolutely does. Yeah. And it, it takes, I had a gal who had taken our fear workshop many, many years ago, come to me and say, after that workshop, I went to work and I asked my boss for a raise. I hadn't had a raise in three years and I had earned it. I had worked hard for it, but I was always too afraid. What if they said no? What if this? What if that? What if things are awkward because they don't get it? What if I don't get it? What would I do? And she said, it gave me the courage to walk in there and say, hey, I'm deserving and I'm worthy of this and I want it. And she got it. That's great. So do you talk then after you've looked at, like, is it something like present in the moment right now? Or is it something in the future that you're, you've got this anticipatory anxiety or anticipatory fear of, and then you've looked at comfort zones Do you work beyond that? Is there something that comes after that in the process? So one of the things we do, this is where we utilize the horses so that we can experience what does it feel like to get uncomfortable without going to the edge of the cliff? And then what does it feel like to feel that raise in your body? Like like I'm standing at the front of the horse and I feel good. Standing at the back of the horse might be the edge of the cliff. So what if we stop in the middle where we're just a little bit uncomfortable? What does that feel like? So it's learning what does it feel like? And then it's staying in that space long enough to not feel like that, to feel a little bit better. And then retreating back to a comfortable space. And if you do that and you commit to it, before you know it, you're standing at the back of the horse. Yeah, it's stress inoculation in a way. Yes. Yeah. It's taking small steps rather than the giant leap. Yes. And having a little recovery time because it is a bit of a shock to the system when you step outside your comfort zone. Yes. Uh, but having a little recovery time and then doing it again. I read a book written by Dr. Stephanie Burns, who has a PhD in adult learning. She's Australian. She is just this powerhouse of knowledge. And she wrote this great book called Move Closer, Stay Longer. And it's a book about fear of horses. She was hired to look at a home study program and and she figured in, in order to really learn about the program, she had to go through it. But through that process, she discovered, well, I'm afraid of horses. And she wrote a book about how to build strategies to overcome that. And it was huge for me and took me to another level Because it was step one, hey, let's acknowledge we have fear. Mm -hmm. Let's look it in the eye and let's say, hey, I don't feel good about this. But now what am I going to do about it? Yeah. And then taking action to do about, do something about it. She had an exercise in there that was probably one of the most powerful ones I had done on my journey. And I have a lot of our students and program participants do it too. You make 
three columns on a piece of paper. And in column one, whether it's with horses or asking your boss for a raise or whatever it is, you write in that circumstances, things you can do and feel nothing. Here are all the things I can do. I can brush, I can saddle, whatever it is. I can do all these things and feel nothing. And in the second column are things I can do, but I I have some anxiety about it, or I'm uncomfortable, I'm unsure, there's some fear there, but I can do them anyways. And then in column three are here is a list of things I can't do because the fear is too great. It brings awareness to really what are you afraid of? Because you're not just afraid of horses. You're very afraid. You're afraid of specific things. Mm -hmm. And when you break that down and you look at it honestly, now you have a list of things in front of you to work on. I know I don't need to work on these things because I can do them and feel nothing. Yeah. But what can I do in these other areas? And it was when you commit to it. It was, a, it was amazing how quickly things would move columns and how things that were even in column three that I could not do because my fear was too great, once committed to work through it, were in column one that I could do it and feel nothing. There's still things like, I don't like picking up back feet. Don't like it. Probably will never like it. My goal would be able to pick up feet and feel nothing. But I'm probably always going to feel that little twinge of, ooh, when I'm at that hind foot, but where I used to not be able to do it at all, I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great process. And I can see how that transfers into a whole bunch of other things. Yes. But you're right though. I mean, that awareness of really what you are afraid of and, and asking the question like, why, you know, I think if you, if you say like in, in your column three, like I am afraid to walk behind a horse, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are, you know, why? Well, because I'm afraid I'm going to get kicked. Why? Because if I get kicked, they might break my leg or kick me in the head and kill me. Exactly. You know? and, and once you kind of work through that, then you know what you're dealing with. And you can ask like, well, is this legit? Like, is it a probable thing that this is going to happen. Exactly. Is this fear now or is this anticipated fear? And if this is anticipated fear, what is the likelihood? Like if you're going to come to one of my programs, what is the likelihood that I would put you behind a horse that would kick you? Right. It's probably slim. It's really interesting because with the self-defense work, um, especially working with Tony Blower, like some of the concepts that he talks about are, there's a ton of stuff that's possible. Mm Mm-hmm. And you could spend a lot of time worrying about what could possibly happen. Yeah. It's far more productive to look at what is probable. Yes. That is exactly the same. Yeah. And then, you know, also just specifically in the area of fear. Yeah. Okay. So you've got a fear. Do you have any evidence that it's actually real? Right. You know, is there an expectation that you have that's actually based on something true? Or are you looking at false evidence and do you have false expectations? Right. No, it's, it's fascinating. I, I love the topic of fear and how to navigate through it. I do too. Yeah. And there's a lot of different like doorways to go through, but the process all seems to be very similar. And you know, in the horse world, fear is something you don't talk about. It's like the taboo. It's the cowgirl up and do it anyways. But, you know, you can't fake it till you make it when you have a 1,200-pound animal in your presence. 
it doesn't work. And at some point, it's going to go badly. So I'm curious, this is something else that popped up as you were talking about working with the horses. How do you navigate through when the horse gets scared in an interaction or when you have, in particular, one of the wild horses that's in the round pen? Have you had moments where one of those horses has just gotten really scared? Oh, absolutely. Like, how do you, what do you do with your interaction with that horse to help the horse deal with the fear? Well, very first off, you take all the pressure off. When you want, in the presence of a horse, to build a a confident partnership between the two of you, that the horse responds to things rather than reacts and instinctually react. They are a prey animal. We are predators. When you get in that pen with a wild horse, I eat meat. I smell like I eat meat. That horse can smell that I eat meat. And his fear isn't just what's going to happen, what's she going to do. His is a fear now. There's a predator entering my space and it wants to eat me. My instinctual side of my brain says I need to react by fight or flight. I'm in a round pen so I could run in circles or I could fight. When you put pressure on that, that's a time bomb and it's only going to explode. But if you take the pressure off, it usually will diffuse the situation and give you both a moment to think. I have this thing that I do sometimes that if I'm asking a horse to do something, wild, domestic, trained, whatever, and I don't get the response that I expected, I stop, I take a step back, and I physically put my hand on my chin because I think you have to physically do this to click it in your brain. And I go, hmm, isn't that interesting? (laughs) Certainly didn't expect that to happen. When I do that, I tend to laugh or giggle or smile like Uh I just did, which changes your energy. That step back and takes all the pressure off and it gives the horse a minute to think that usually they stop and will look at you and go, whoo, what happened? (laughs) I don't know. Let's figure it out together. Horses need leadership. I hear a lot of people say, if you're in with your horse, you have to be alpha. I don't know that I agree with that. I do believe horses seek a leader. And if you can be a leader, they will follow. And when something is scary, they will look to their leader and say, should I be scared of this? Support me through this. What do I need to do? Where do I need to go? It's really easy as predators to get in a pen with a prey animal and be a predator. So it's learning how to not do that. It's learning how to be soft, how to be vulnerable. I always ask people to think about who is a great leader in your mind? Someone you worked for, maybe a parent, maybe you know someone that you've known that you look at and go, wow, they lead people well. And what are those qualities about them that make them that solid leader? That's all a horse needs. That's all they need. They need they need to be fair. A leader disciplines and there's consequences, but they're fair. They're clear in their communication. They're clear in what they ask and what they expect. 
And if you can be those things, a horse goes, whew, I don't have to worry about anything today. I have a leader. They're going to make sure I'm fed and watered. A leader is going to keep me safe. A leader is going to offer me opportunity to play and interact with other horses. I'm golden. I've got a leader. Yeah. It's just the other thing that came to mind about leadership to me is consistency. Because I think one of the things that creates so much chaos is when somebody is in a leadership position, but how they respond to things varies. Yes. Because then you don't know. Is this, you know, is A going to happen or is B going to happen if I do this? Right. Absolutely. Consistency is a big part. I agree with you. Yeah. That's cool. So what are some of the top issues for the women who come to your programs? So horses have four primary needs. The number one thing in their life is safety. They need to know if they're safe right now in this minute, not in 10 minutes from now, Not was I safe 20 minutes ago. Right now, where I am, am I safe? If they're safe, their second need is to be fed. If a horse doesn't feel safe, they won't eat because they have to lower their head. They don't see as well when their head is down. It makes them more vulnerable to an attack. So number one is safety. Number two is I need to be fed. Number three is, well, now I feel safe. And now I've been fed, I need to play. I would like to play. And if those needs have been met, their fourth need is sex. Those are the four things a horse needs to lead a happy, healthy life. So I take those four concepts and how does that apply to us in our lives? If number one is safety, what does that look like for you? Because safety for me might be totally different than what safety is for you. Is it Safety in emotional expression? Is it safety within a relationship? Is it safety, financial safety? What does define what safe is for you? And you know, I don't think a lot of people sit down and really think about that. No. What would make me feel safe? And and say it and own it. This is what I need in my life to feel safe. Hmm. And then once we're safe, now let's talk about being fed. Let's talk about nourishment. Is it food? Is it spirituality? Is it intimacy? What nourishes you? And are you making sure that you're nourished? Then once that's taken care of, are you playing? What does play look like for you? Because all work and no play is not a happy life. We have to play. We have to have moments of just sure bliss and Get outside of ourselves. And you can, I did this for years. I let my profession define who I was as a person. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that I could have professional fulfillment and personal fulfillment at the same time. And play, I am so grateful for my husband because he taught me the importance of play and how to play. And it's important to have in your life. It absolutely is. And if all those needs have been met, I'm here to tell you, what is sex and where does it fit in? And maybe it isn't a physical sex for you, but it is intimacy. We need to have intimacy to feel balanced and to feel wellness and to feel good. Yes, that intimate connection with another, another being. So we pick those things apart and we use those, those foundations 
for the work with the horses. And we allow the horses to teach the people, what does that mean for you? And create that. When a person is with a horse, a lot of the people that we see, sometimes this is the first time in their lives they have experienced unconditional acceptance. That's huge. That is huge. And when you feel accepted, it's really easy to then start exploring these four concepts and defining what is safety for me? And what am I doing to feel safe? Because it it isn't your responsibility to make me feel safe. It isn't your spouse's responsibility to make you feel safe. It's your responsibility to make you feel safe. You may have this network of support around you that aids you in that, but you have to own that. Yeah. You have to define it. You have to own it. And then you have to take action to see that you are safe. Yes. Oh, that, you know, that fits totally in with how I teach women self-defense because, I mean, I hate to use the word self-defense because it conjures up so many things that are limiting about it because it is about your mental, emotional, and physical safety. Yes. And it is all about your personal ownership of that. And you're tapping into your own agency to take action on your own behalf. Yes. You know, so it's an exact overlap right there. And the second thing that popped up was just like right now in this whole situation with the pandemic and the lockdown and everything, I think it would be a very valuable exercise for people to go through, you know, just individually. Mm -hmm. How safe do I feel right now? Because I think most people don't feel safe. Right. And, you know, what areas do I not feel safe in? And then what can I do to start to improve my actual safety, not just that I'm feeling safe, but I really am. (laughs) Right. And I think often we acknowledge I don't feel safe, but we don't take the next step of going, how do I not feel safe? And what can I do to change it? How can I impact it? It's that whole diagram of your circle of concern versus your circle of influence. Yes. And Are you going to live in that circle of concern space and focus on that? Or are you going to own it and break out to that circle of influence where, where can I implement change? Yeah. Where can I have a positive impact so that I can make sure I'm thriving? That's really interesting um, because I see, and I'm guilty of this too, but often like in the moment, my response is, you know, well, you shouldn't be doing this or this shouldn't be happening to me. And it's really hard to let go of that and and get back in your own space and say, okay, never mind the shoulds and the you oughtas and, you know, this shouldn't be happening stuff and just have that acceptance of like, okay, this is happening. What's my responsibility for what can I do to actually navigate through this and manage my piece. That's where I also think building that tribe around you is so critical. I heard a motivational speaker, so horrible with names. If she had a horse, I could tell you what her horse's name was, <laughs> but I'll never be able to tell you what so her name to that. was. <laughs> and uh, it was a powerful speech that she gave. And, and one thing that really resonated with me that I took with me, and this was several years ago, 
was that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who are ladders and there are people who are basements. And we all have low times. We all have those times where we're the shoulda, woulda, couldas, and we are in the basement. And you want to make sure when you are in that space that you have surrounded yourself with ladders, people who will extend a ladder and help you climb out of the basement, not other basements who will crawl into the basement with you and hold space there. Yeah. That that's not serving you in any way. So you got to make sure the people you're surrounding yourselves with are ladders. And I, it's like part of my personal mission statement that I will be a ladder. That's what I was thinking. It's like, be a fucking ladder. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to be a ladder. Yeah. I'm going to be a badass ladder. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> Absolutely. Golly, I, I have so many more questions for you. I think we could talk for probably 48 hours. Still not actually be done, but, um, so how did you come to call your horses the healing herd? And what are some of the breakthroughs and transformations you've seen happen with them in the last couple of years? I think the horses called themselves the healing herd. They're the ones who are the real healers. And it just sort of happened. I I couldn't even tell you when it happened. It just happened. They're the healing herd. It's what they do. And some of the most powerful transformations have happened for those who weren't even seeking one. I think those ones are my favorite. I've had volunteers who were coming out to volunteer that weren't seeking a healing experience. They were seeking an opportunity to volunteer with an organization and I got an, an email one day that said, you know, I, I don't know if I would get up some days out of bed, but the fact that there's a medicine horse project and horses that need to be brushed and waters that need to be filled, get me out of bed some days. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. It's just amazing that that, that happens. Yeah. Well, sometimes when we can't take action on our own behalf. Right. But we know that there's somebody in need that we can care for. Yes. 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 And I think the other favorite for me is seeing women and little girls gain confidence that they never even knew they had. Never even knew that was within them. And uh, we have this one little girl that just adopted a horse and I've been teaching her how to back up her horse and I've been telling her she, that horse can read your intent before you even ask the intent in your body changes. So kind of lean in there and make that face that says, get out of my space. And it is her get out of my space face is priceless. And that horse is like, oh, I'm out of my space. And I looked at her dad the other night and said, you have no idea how powerful that face will be in certain times. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting because especially for little girls who are sweet little girls, nice little girls, um, it's very hard to put on that intense, powerful Oh, she has got it down. Yeah. I love it. I saw that with my daughter, Charlotte, when she was in martial arts and she was training. uh, She was a black belt candidate. And I remember very distinctly getting out of our minivan at our home in Sunnyvale and she and her big brother were in some kind of an argument of, you know, kind of stuff. 
And I looked over and she just had this look on her face that was just terrifying. And I remember saying, Charlotte, stop doing that to your brother. But that's an excellent intensity face. So (laughs) that's what you need karate. Because they were always telling her that she needed to look intense and she needed to get that sort of mean face on. And she just couldn't because she would always laugh because she was sweet. And it was that moment where it was like, like, that's inappropriate when it's directed at your brother. But well, it's it perfect was, for other situations. It is, it is interesting to watch someone try to back up a horse that isn't a horse person or doesn't normally do something like that because they're smiling and they're like, back up. And they have this big grin on their face and such an inviting energy. And it's like, there's nothing about that that says back up. Nothing. Come come to me and have snuggles. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. What does it look like? Tell that horse, change your body, lean in there, pin your ears, back up. Yeah. And to watch that transformation. And then the aha of, I have it within me to make that animal back up is amazing. Well, and it directly translates into, I have a right to have my space in the world and I can actually set a boundary and keep other beings out of it. Yes. Yeah. That's huge. That's so cool. I get like little goosebumps. (laughs) Wow. Uh, What are some of the things that you have seen? Because I know that you've done some special work with veterans. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the issues that they've come in with and, and how have you seen the work with the horses help them? I'll tell you, there's something really special between, in particular, wild horses and veterans. They get each other on a level that only they understand. But if you break it down, a wild horse born on the range is taken away from their home put in an environment that is unfamiliar to them, where there is a language that they don't know, and they don't know what is going to happen next. And they are hyper aware and vigilant about what's going on around them. Then you take a veteran who is taken away from their family, put into an environment that they're unfamiliar with, often where there's a language being spoken that they don't speak where they have to be hyper aware and vigilant of everything going on around them for their safety at all times. These two creatures, they get each other. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the greatest gifts the horses give those veterans is to be present right now, to get out of our head and out of the future, out of what happened behind us and to be right here And to treasure this moment right here is incredible. It's powerful. And it often leaves me speechless to just sit and watch. But it really is about here. Yeah. Do you see on a physiological basis, like do you give people practices of like breath work and how to be in the body that creates a change in the horse's physiology? And then do you see the opposite where it's actually the horse's energy and heartbeat and breathing that affects the person? Absolutely. So one of the first things we have to learn just in ground schooling and having a horse online is how to physically have our body in a position of, for lack of a better way to say it, power or maybe stability where, you know, you want your legs, your feet 
firmly planted on the ground. You want your legs a little bit spread apart. You want knuckles up because your arms are stronger this way as opposed to palms up. These little tiny things can make a big difference when you're with a horse and it changes your body awareness. Breathing is a big one. And I see a lot of times when we put people in with wild horses, one of the number one things I'm saying is, I need you to breathe. (laughs) You're not breathing. Take a big, deep breath. And it's usually never fails. And it always makes me smile when that that participant finally goes, the horse goes, I was waiting for you to do that. Now I can breathe too. Uh You know, it's, it's so amazing. But watching, learning to watch what's going on with the horse helps you understand whether or not they feel good in the space that they're in. Just like the horse is watching you. Mm -hmm. They're watching how your respiration is. They're watching your heart rate. They're watching, are you sweaty? They're watching all those things just like we're watching them. And, you know, they need you to be confident. So if you're in there not breathing and you're in there nervous, they're going, wow, why would I feel good? So learning how to center yourself and how to control your energy, that's a big one especially if fear and anxiety is getting involved, our energy gets out here. And how do, we, how do we tailor that in? How do we bring it in and control it? Breath is a big part of it. At Women's Empowerment, Hazel Patterson is such a critical role in the experience for those women, bringing yoga and meditation, chanting, and teaching us how to control our breath is vital to the experience. And she brings so much to the table. That's really cool because breath work is something that's relatively new in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that bubbled up actually working with Tony Blower. He discovered how important breathing was for him personally. And then he was like, holy cow, hang on. This really relates to how you navigate through fear. Yes. You know, when people are scared, they often kind of well, your whole physiology changes, but one of the things is like you don't breathe very much or you shallow breathe. Yes. So your brain's not getting a whole heck of a lot of oxygen to actually think. Yes. So incorporating conscious breathing really, really helps. And so I've been playing with, not with Annalisa, because she and I are so in tune after all these years. I, I don't know how much I could visibly influence her, but because the minis are still kind of skittish and, you know, there's a lot in the world they're not super confident about. I've been trying just going, you know, hanging out in the stall when they come in in the evening and trying like, okay, if I do 10 of these conscious breaths, does anything happen? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's interesting because I mean, sometimes I can see a shift in them and sometimes I can't. And this is one of my goals is to work with them one-on-one so I can see it better. (laughs) Yes. But I think that that it's such a cool thing to realize that if you can start to manage your energy and be aware of what's going on on the inside, mm-hmm. then you can start to become aware of how other beings pick up on what's going on inside of you that you may not otherwise be aware of. Yes. I always tell people, if you don't get the response that you expected out of the horse, look within you first. For horses... Purity, honesty, truth is everything. And for us, that means that what's going on in our mind, what's coming out of our mouth, 
And what's happening in our body has to be congruent. And if it's not, the horse will call you out on it every time. I typically don't like my students or participants to speak. Let's eliminate that one right there. Now let's just worry about the two, getting what's going on in our mind and what's happening in our body congruent Mm -hmm. because the horse will respond to that. And if they're not responding, look within yourself, what isn't aligned and how do we fix it? Because the change that needs to happen isn't within the horse, it's within you. If you change, the horse is going to change its response. That's interesting because I can see how that also applies to interactions with people. Because you know, often when you have a conflict with somebody else, you know, our our bodies and our brains pick up on other people's energy and other people's intentions. And there's a lot that's not cognitive and rational. Yes. And we're not aware of that. But the place that we tend to go, speaking personally for myself, the place that I used to tend to go was like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, rather than what the hell's going on with me? Right. Well, it's easier. It's easier to wonder what's going on with the other side of this than to, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to say what's going on with me. That takes courage. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, Well, I guess that's a really good time for me to ask you this question. How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Oh, wow. I love that question. And there's so many different ways. But I say the step one comes to those four things, safety, nourishment, play, and sex, and really defining what is safe. What does that mean to me? And what actions am I taking to fulfill that and to make sure that I'm safe? If you don't define it, you can't make it happen. But when you align those things, It gives you a confidence. It gives you a power. And when you have that, step two, chase your passion. Chase that fire that burns in your belly, no matter what it is, because it will fulfill you in so many different aspects of your life. And it, the joy, the overall wellness, the protection when you're passionate about something that you will put on those four. They will drive you to make sure that you keep yourself safe. I love that. That's a great blending of the principles. Yeah. With the purpose. Yes. Yeah. That's, I love that. Well, we have been talking for quite a long time, so I suppose we're going to have to wrap it up. Are you going to be holding the retreat in the fall that you usually hold. Yes. Well, then can you talk about that? Yes. I can tell you that the retreat is full. (laughs) Well, that's good because one of them is me. (laughs) In every year, I think this is our sixth sixth time doing it in partnership with Lifesavers. And when we open registration, it's usually within a few weeks that the retreat fills. And it's Often, as we take 12 participants, there's usually five or seven returnees. And we've recognized we're going to have to do more of this because we need more women and more women want to get involved and we're booking up too quick. But it is a incredible weekend. I look forward to it all year long. So we take these women into Wild Horse Canyon, Lifesavers Wild Horse Sanctuaries facilities. 
We have a chef come in and cook for us all weekend. We do yoga. We do meditation. And we spend a lot of quality time with wild horses. Through that work, we're going to strip away all the inhibitions, all the labels that people have put on us and that maybe we've put on ourselves. And we're going to do some dreaming. We're going to just pick it all apart and we're going to dream big, unstoppable dreams. Then we're going to lay out a plan of how to take all that goodness and take it home so that it keeps going. And so do you stay connected then after the retreat with the women who participated? I call the women who have participated in the retreat the resilient tribe. And these are lifelong friendships. These women have stayed connected beyond and welcomed in every woman from from time after. We have a a special social media group that only those women that have participated in is, is in. And it's awesome to see that one will post and say, hey, I'm having a struggle and I could use some support. And to see those women rally around and lift each other up is just mind-boggling, humbling, and incredible. Well, when you go through an experience like that, that is very raw Mm -hmm. and where you are extremely vulnerable and you sort of strip things away and then sort of reform, it's kind of like the phoenix rising out of the ashes, you know, Uh, but you do that with a group, then those bonds are very, very strong. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's really cool. So when women come back, after having been there before, do they tend to have different experiences than they did the first time through or? Yes. Do they just get deeper or a different layer or different stuff comes up? I think they get deeper. I think they get different layers. I think different stuff comes up. But as the facilitator, I'm on this incredible journey called life too. And so not every year is exactly the same as the year before, because something in my own journey and my own path has inspired me where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to share this. I have to share this with the women and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this activity. We're going to talk about this. I'm going to bring this new tool to the table. So not every year is exactly the same. And honestly, I think even if the curriculum was identical, not all the women are. Right which is always going to make it different. Not all the horses are the same, which is always going to bring something different to the table as well. Right. Well, I am glad that I am already signed up to go do that. And I will do a podcast episode, maybe down there. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. Uh, But for sure afterwards to talk about what that experience has been like. So I am looking forward to that big time. (laughs) We are, as you know, in the process of building a new facility in Nevada. My husband, oh my gosh, bless his heart, is working like a fiend to get this thing built for the horses. But it's going to give us an incredible space to do more of that stuff. Good. And I'm so excited. So how many horses do you have right now at the Medicine Horse Project? We've had a lot of adoptions lately. I need to count. 13? I think we were... At like 26, 27, and we've had quite a few adoptions. And now I think we're at 13. It's pretty amazing. For now. Yes. For now. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's great. Well, I know that there are going to be women who are going to want to explore this and get in touch with you, um, either to support or to find out about the programs. So can you share how to connect with you and where to find you out in the world? Absolutely. Best place to connect with us is on Facebook. The Medicine Horse Project has a Facebook page and we are the most active there because it's easy. Being as remote as we are, Wi-Fi is always a challenge. (laughs) Always a challenge. I can relate. (laughs) The second place would be our website, which is www.medicinehorseproject.org. It is currently being redone and and under some construction because I want to incorporate what's happening in Nevada out there and stuff like that. But that is a great place to connect. You can also get to our Facebook page from there. And we've just started on Instagram. I'm kind of new and figuring all that out on Instagram, but it's been fun, different, but I'm going to conquer it. I'm not the most technically, but I'm learning. (laughs) I am learning. So those are the best ways to get a hold of us. And of course, uh, it's always, we run solely on donation from people like you. Mm -hmm. And donations are critical to us continuing our work and rescuing more horses and healing more humans. So all of those places, there is an aspect or a link you can click to make donations. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I I will have all of that in the show notes. Beautiful. For sure. And I hope that people do reach out and follow you. And like one of the things that I really like about your newsletter and about your social media presence, and I can see how this is really going to fit well into Instagram, is that you share the stories of the horses and not just the stories about how they arrive to join the healing herd, but what happens with them once they're there, because really their arrival into your space is just the beginning of the journey. And I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've followed them from like the camp horses that you rescued who had such a horrible situation and uh, such a, a incredible journey to get to you. And then the wild the wild ones, the stallions and yes. uh, the Mustangs that were in such a bad situation, like they they were coming from bad places. And so their actual arrival to you was pretty extraordinary. But then seeing how you work with them and seeing how they respond to the world and, and then the ones that get adopted, you keep you keep up with them too. So there's a lot of storytelling and it's all really inspiring. So I could really see on social media that Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of reason to stay connected. The act itself of rescuing the horse is the easiest part the journey begins when they arrive and that's when the work begins that my favorite word is resilient i love that word it is those horses who taught about resilience these horses have every right to not want anything to do with a human ever again from physical neglect to mental and emotional abuse to physical abuse to abandonment. These horses have every right to say, not happening, but they don't. They heal physically, which is the easy part, but more amazing is that they heal their hearts and they offer us partnership and they're They teach us how to be resilient and to face adversity with an open mind and to heal from it and move on and to come out the other end of that stronger and happier and healthier. What a powerful lesson. 
And that's what we want to teach people. So sharing their stories and and keeping people engaged with what goes on on a daily basis with these horses is such a big part of what we do because that's where the lesson lies. The lesson lies in what happens with those horses every day. Yeah. Yes. And that's where the inspiring part is for, for people who have suffered through mental, emotional, physical trauma and abuse, who have suffered abandonment and who have been neglected, you know, to, I can see how that is part of the power of the connection with the horses in the herd. And I can see how that inspires in both directions. Yes. The healing. So that I often that. don't want to know the backstory. I don't, I don't want to know because for us at the Medicine Horse Project, it's irrelevant at this point because today's a new day. When they come, they all get a new name because today's a new day. And all that matters is what do you need from me today to make you feel better? And then we'll deal with tomorrow when tomorrow comes. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing that just, and I know I said we were about to wrap up, but you keep sparking other things in me. Um, I We're going to have to have a part two. <laughs> we are. <laughs> uh, there was a woman that I interviewed recently, and she was talking about uh, that she had had several really difficult things happen when she was younger and all kinds of abuse. And one of the big lessons for her was that what happened to you does not have to define you. Yep. And I think same, same applies to the horses as well. Yes. Well, with that, my dear, I want to say thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. This has been so much fun. Oh, I'm honored. This was a blast. Well, we will definitely have you back on again. But for now, this has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.